The Video Insiders is the show that makes sense of all that is happening in the world of online video, as seen through the eyes of a second-generation Kodak nerd and a marketing guy who knows what iframes and macro blocks are. And here are your hosts, Mark Donegan and Dror Gill. Well, greetings, Dror. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm, I'm just back from a vacation in Europe. Excellent weather, uh, lakes, mountains. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Awesome. Where did you guys go? We went to uh, Germany, uh, Black Forest, and, uh, and then we passed over uh, the Rhine River to uh, the Alsace wine country in France. Oh, wow. And yeah, that, wow. was, that was really awesome. I went with the whole family and, and we enjoyed it a lot. And uh, also, I'm uh, very excited today because uh, for the first time, we're going to have a chance to uh, interview uh, one of our own algorithm uh, developers, and actually the person who is responsible for all algorithm development at Beamer and all of the uh, amazing IP that we've developed here over the past uh, 10 years. So I'd like to welcome Tamar Shoham, our VP Technology. Hello, Tamar. Hi. Hi, guys. Very exciting welcome, to be Welcome, Tamar. Here. Hi. I feel a bit like Alice through the looking glass after having heard all 20 previous episodes being on the other side this time. It's a bit strange, but well, I'm sure we'll get used to it over the next such and such minutes. <laughs> You better, you better get used to it. I have a feeling this is going to be our highest rated, uh, downloaded episode yet, and we'll have to have you come back. So we'll try to keep it interesting. So you'll get very comfortable, <laughs> okay? Because uh, in this episode, Tamar is going to share all the secrets behind uh, Beamer's uh, content adaptive uh, technology and the story and how we developed it uh, over the past uh, ten years. And uh, this is because we're actually uh, presenting uh, the technology in a paper. We've, uh, th this paper uh, has been accepted to uh, SPIE, uh, Image Processing Conference, that's uh, taking place uh, in uh, mid-August. And uh, Tamar is going to present the technology there. And that's why we thought it would be a great opportunity to talk to Tamar a bit about uh, the technology and get a very short uh, preview into that uh, presentation. And actually, Tamar, I think it's... Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's quite a rare occasion that we can get you out in front of the academic public and talk about uh, our technology, right? I think definitely, the last. Definitely, definitely. I managed for 10 years to stay hidden in the lab, you know, in the Beamer basements. And uh, apparently <laughs> the time has come, you know, to see the light of day. So we yes, finally got you out. This you is finally a big event. Did. Yeah, so yeah. Well, we, hit you, we hit you very well. And now it's time to <laughs> expose you to the sun. Yeah, the sun of San Diego. In San Diego, that's right. That's where the conference is going to be. And um, and also, uh, I'm, I'm sure the audience will enjoy it, both in the conference itself and our listeners, having a chance to learn firsthand about all this uh, technology that um, that we've developed. But first, I'd like to start with uh, some uh, some personal background. Can you tell us about uh, your uh, your history and background uh, before joining Beamer? Sure. So I've been in the in the business of uh, algorithm development uh, and and signal processing for twenty years now, over twenty years. Um, most of those were in the field of video compression, and uh, I started out at Converse at the algorithms team there, and we developed after a few years doing general algorithms, we started working on video when streaming video, video over the internet, video over cellular networks was really just starting out and got to ride that wave. 
which was very exciting. Later on, I went on to do my uh, master's at the Technion under Professor David Malach and uh, had the, the honor, the pleasure of leading the signal processing lab at the Technion activity in the Negev Consortium, which was a consortium aimed at cooperation between the industry and the academia to get the, the field of personalized video rolling. And uh, we, our little contribution to that consortium was to get the personalized ads uh, embedded into the video content. And it, it was actually quite interesting because from previous standards, you know, MPEG-1, 2, H.263, uh, our preconception was that you can do embedding of content without full decode encode. But once you get to the sophisticated tools of H.264, there is so much uh, prediction going on and so much differentiation that that propagation error just accumulates so quickly that you have to learn to rethink uh, previous conceptions. So we did that for a few years. And just as I was trying to figure out what my next step in life would be, uh, Nimrod Peleg from SIPL introduced UDRAWR to me and me to you. And uh, that the rest is Beamer history. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So actually, uh, Sharon Carmelo founded the company, played with some ideas and asked me to join. That was uh, beginning of 2009. And I worked with him. And after a few months, we decided that uh, we need some more algorithm power. So I told Sharon, let's go to the signal processing lab in the Technion. They have some great people. Maybe we can find somebody who's just finishing his or hers master degree and can help us. And um, and and yes, Nimrod introduced us to uh, Tamar, and uh, the rest is history. And and at that time, actually, we were working on on images, and we were trying to see how can we take a JPEG image and reduce the file size without hurting quality. And we played around with various uh, standard quality measures. And then, Tamara, you joined and, and we decided uh, to take uh, a different approach, right? Yeah, so actually, I'd, I'd been having this frustration growing for years that there was no quality measure out there that did the job. And even back in Converse, we investigated a few solutions that were coming out on the market back then. And, and none of them were good enough to, to really be able to evaluate if the video quality was perceptually acceptable. And I, I actually wanted to do my master's on that. And I came with the idea to Professor Malach and he said, well, look, you're never going to be able to prove that under a mathematical constraint, your solution is optimal. So it's not a good thing to do a thesis on. Um, so I kept myself occupied with the video through the consortium and my thesis is actually on on text-to-speech compression of, of uh, reduction of footprint, but still keeping it perceptually identical. So I didn't steer too far away. And yeah, then so there was a connection there. There was a connection. And then when we started at Beamer, we were actually, well, back then we weren't even Beamer yet, but we were, as you said, we were focused on images and we wanted to use video technology to compress images. We were very excited about trying to use all the intra-prediction tools that the newer video compression standards offer to make images much more compact. And while there were a few reasons that that didn't pan out, one of them simply being that video players don't work well with single images, 
and and the yeah. install base just isn't there. And while we were working on this, we realized that uh, in the JPEG images that are used across all the platforms, even today, 10 years later, there is just so much redundancy because it's an old standard, not uh, significantly optimized and vendors or, or um, image storage, uh, image providers were taking one of two approaches. They were either saying, I want to be sure I have excellent quality. I'm just going to use a very, very high quality factor and my, my images will be a bit bigger but they'll all look perfect. Other vendors were saying, I have so many images, you know, and they're only viewed on a web page at low resolution anyway. So I'm just going to use a relatively aggressive quality factor. And, you know, it's fine. That's good enough. And between those two approaches, there's this whole dynamic range of actually taking each image to where that image should be and how aggressively it can be compressed while still retaining all the perceptual quality of the image. And so we started out figuring with, with the realization that staying from JPEG to JPEG and not introducing any new standard, but just finding that optimal working point that could solve the problem of the storage and the bandwidth that service providers were experiencing with JPEG images. And that, I think, was, you know, one of the, the significant building stones to all the things we built later is the understanding that you want to stay compatible to the original standard and the original format. Because, you know, it's very nice to do a proprietary format or even use some standard that isn't widely enough adopted. But th that affects or impacts the user experience because they used to be able to open their image on their uh, computer, phone, digital frame. And if, if you ruin that experience for them, then okay, you've made the file smaller, but you haven't really helped them. So in our products, that's one of the things that we always stay focused on, keeping the standard, being compatible, making the file smaller, the user shouldn't know that anything happened. It should look the same. It should feel the same. It should open on the same players. It's just smaller. So that... that right. Sm smaller only in file size, not in resolution or any other uh, aspect. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and most importantly, you need to keep the quality of that image um, and, and, and retain that uh, uh, perceptually. And as, as we started developing the technologies, the technology of um, optimizing an image and trying various different compression levels, uh, we found out actually that um, the regular uh, quality measures like PSNR and SSIM are um, are not good enough. They, they don't work uh, doing the trick. So yeah, yeah we, we, I used to say that, you know, every paper discussing image and video compression or quality tends to start out with PSNR is a terrible metric and it's not all that well correlated with human uh, perception. But in this paper, we're going to use PSNR because, you know, that's the way to measure the improvement. Uh, and, and that's true in, in standard bodies and in academic papers and across the board because that's what there is. And I mean, everyone knows that PSNR is not a, a reliable or, or perceptually uh, correlated metric. Um, but even the, the more sophisticated metrics like SSIM or multi-scale SSIM, we found that they fell short sometimes in reliably 
estimating the quality measure. And I was I was talking before about my frustration because I wanted to, you know, I was lacking the quality measure in Converse and I wanted to do my thesis on it, but it wasn't theoretical enough. And here I finally got the opportunity. So I think we had the first version out in something like less than a month. We had our first version of the quality measure out. And, you know, people sometimes say, well, that there are teams of researchers working over the world on this. So so what? You know, you claim you're smarter. You claim, no, you won't hear that from me. But we did ask the right question. And right. We're solving the right problem with this quality measure. Exactly. And pinpointing what you need is the way to find the ants. So people were working on quality measures that can portray a wide range of artifacts, including, you know, back in the day, a packet loss over cellular networks. And we asked a very specific and well-posed question at first, starting from JPEG and then extending it to, to video codecs. But for JPEG, if I have a JPEG image or an input image that went through JPEG compression is the output perceptually identical to the input to the average user? And that's a very simple question. And when you answer that question, you can develop a quality measure, which is both efficient computationally and very accurate because you know the JPEG compression, you know what kind of artifacts it's going to introduce. So you specifically measure the degree of those artifacts and whether they pass a perceptual threshold or not. And and then you have the answer. So it's, it's basically served up on a platter once you're asking the right question. Right, exactly. And in, in some cases, you even have even more focused question. You have a JPEG that's been compressed and you take that JPEG and you compress it more. And is the new JPEG, uh, does it look like the previous uh, JPEG? And, and as you said, since we're talking about JPEG compression, uh, we know what kind of artifacts to, ex to expect. And then we can build a quality measure that can exactly quantify those artifacts in a way that is similar uh, to the way that human perception quantifies those artifacts. And eventually, you don't need to give a, a numeric score. You just need to reach a point that says, okay, this is a point, this is a threshold that uh, says that th these two images look the same. And above this or be below this threshold, it means that an average user could see a difference uh, between the images. Exactly. Maybe and 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 this uh, and this process, which we started with with JPEG, is also relevant uh, to video frames, as we see later. Mm -hmm. uh, can you give us uh, some pointers, some insights into the quality measure? What is it sure, made of? Sure. So we started with a three-component quality measure. Um, it has a component that measures local similarity between co-located pixels. So I'll add before that, the, the quality measure we use is a full reference quality metric. So it assumes that it has an original video frame or image that it's comparing the quality degradation to. This is opposed to no reference metrics, which aim to give a score as to a video frame or image quality uh, without knowing what, what it was created from. And, and they tend to be less reliable and they're not needed in our case. So uh, back to the components, we have a local similarity that looks at the per pixel difference between the degraded image or the, the candidate image and the input image. 
And this is a PSNR type metric, but again, it's only one component of the score. And we do some very careful scaling, thresholding, and spatial pooling to make sure, for example, that even if only a very small pixel area is badly corrupted, it won't be averaged out with other pixels that are acceptable, which is what happens in regular PSNR calculation. We then have a component that measures the extent of the introduced blockiness. So we all know, you know that JPEG has typical artifacts being a general distortion, blockiness where it introduces like a block grid. You can see the eight by eight block grid on the image, which is due to the fact that it's a block-based codec that encodes each eight by eight block separately. So we look for these added blockiness. And again, you know, did we introduce blockiness that would be perceptible given the surrounding, the image that this blockiness is in? Of course, you know, if you're in a smooth image area, you're going to be much more sensitive to blockiness artifacts in that area as opposed to, for example, grass texture. So that's the second score component, the added artifactual edges. And the third score component that we use in JPEG Mini is a texture component. There are two types of texture distortion, block-based compression, and they're due primarily to the transform to the DCT domain. Frequency domain. Frequency yeah. domain, yes. And uh, the quantization that follows, which adds more corruption in specific uh, frequencies. And so the two texture artifacts that can occur are either smoothing, where we lose some high frequency detail or a, what's often called ringing or mosquito noise around edges where we add artifactual high frequency information. And our texture component evaluates both these kinds of texture distortion. We take these three components, each of them are calculated on a, a, a tile or a specific area in the image. And then we, we first pull the components and then we pull it over the frame, making sure, again, to behave the same way a human viewer does. So a human viewer will not say, oh, you know, 80% of the frame looks fine. Okay. No, a human viewer enough, will, yeah. Yeah, will go to the 20% or the 2% that looks bad and say, what did you do to my photo? Okay, so that's so right. our, our our eye is immediately drawn to to the worst area of the image. Exactly, and and that's even more the case in motion, um, when viewing video. So so like you're just your eye is going to where something flickered and didn't look quite right. Uh, so so we do very careful uh, perceptually weighted pulling over the frame to get the final score. When we proceeded to take this solution and say, okay, you know, images is nice, but the real issue with bandwidth and storage is videos. And we took the solution and we took it one step further and started working on applying a video bitrate reduction without any impact on the, the perceptual quality. And then we added two more components to our quality measure. One is naturally a temporal component. We're talking video. It's not enough to retain the quality of each frame as a standalone frame. You need the temporal flow to be preserved as well. And one more component, which refers to how well edges were preserved. So we found that 
more so in video than in still images, accurate preservation of edges, edge location, edge strength is, is critical because that's exactly the kind of thing the eye is attracted to in motion when it's inaccurate. So we added a, a fifth score component which calculates the edge loss factor, we call it, because it's a really cute TLA of ELF. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's basically how well we preserved the edges. And again, we have, you know, first the component pooling for each area in the image and then the pooling over the entire video frame if we want to make a frame level decision. This is really, really insightful, Tamar. Can you explain maybe a little bit more about the purpose built nature of the quality measure that we designed. We were very targeted, as I, as I said before, on a very specific, answering a very specific question, okay? The question being, has this video frame retained it, its perceptual quality? Will, when viewed in motion by the average viewer, okay, when we're talking about video, will the viewer be able to see any degradation or will he experienced the exact same quality that was experienced for the original frame. And mm. and this is something that, that solves a specific problem. So, you know, if I'll compare it maybe to one of the relatively new players in the field, Netflix score VMAF, which actually also uses pooling of the multiple components, but it's a lot heavier computationally wise. And VMAF spans a very wide range of quality um, distortions. And they do a pretty good job at that, okay? But when we compared them to our metric in the areas that interest us, which are the high quality single encoding generation artifacts that you really want to be perceptually identical. So that maps in VMAF to a very small part of their quality range. And we have found that, let's say, we're more reliable in that range, okay? So we really targeted a specific problem. We're not claiming to have a quality measure that is the be-all and solve-all. But it, it definitely, from what we've seen, is, is the only, that I know of, quality measure that targets this specific problem and does so in a manner that we have proven time and time again to guarantee perceptually identical quality in the input and output. Yeah, the uh, phrase content adaptive encoding, uh, it's its even been shortened and is, I think, becoming pretty commonly known as CAE, is certainly we're coming up on IBC and you, you walk around the show floor, there's going to be, you know, that phrase CAE, content adaptive encoding is going to be everywhere. And yet strikes me that when you look at a lot of the approaches uh, I think almost uh, universally they're using either SSIM or PSNR and you know some maybe have developed their own approach but uh, is it true that a lot of them are, are kind of using these, uh, these 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 older quality measures in their approach yeah I think a lot of them are some are using also VMF uh, which VMAF, again, that's right that's right yeah it's a good metric if you're trying to span a very wide range of, of qualities, okay? It's, it's just solving a different problem. It, it can't mm -hmm. solve our problem. But going back to the point, Mark, of content adaptive encoding, I think this would be a good point to, to explain how our content adaptive encoding is actually different to a lot of the solutions going around. 
So yes, go for content it. Content adaptive encoding can mean different things to different people or, or different companies. I mean, it always means naturally that I'm doing something different when my content changes. But there are a few questions here that are related to the resolution of the adaptation. So am I adapting, for example, for each category of content? you know, which is sort of the coding by colors that Janice wrote up a while back. Um, and, and, and that's better than nothing, okay? But splitting into categories is, is quite challenging because, I mean, you can't really make sports a category. It, there are so many subcategories that are completely different. Um, you can do per title encoding. But again, if we're talking a blockbuster movie, per title will have so much different types of content within that title that it, it almost becomes not adaptive at all. If we're talking per scene adaptation, and we have seen a few of those, so, you know, taking it scene cuts and, and adapting for each scene cut, well, that, that's possible. Of course, that already needs to be an automatic approach. It, it can't be someone, you know, manually setting up a configuration as you can do in per category adaptation. And, and then you get to our solution, which is a per frame content adaptive solution. It looks at every single frame during encoding and says, okay, how much can I squeeze this frame without having an impact on the perceptual quality? And I think it's the combination of a quality metric that's very reliable and able to quickly and efficiently answer that question with an architecture that enables taking an encoder and adding in this additional process without, you know, making it too slow to be realistic for even real-time encoding. Yeah, so, so actually it's, it's the combination of, of the scope of, of the quality measure and, and the fact that it is uh, adapted to its purpose together with the performance efficiency of the quality measure, which enables it to work on a frame-by-frame -frame basis while the encoder is encoding the video and even in real time, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's all that, you know, gets together and, and provides this solution, which really is unique because we're adapting at frame level. So there's no more, you know, having to manually select uh, boundaries and categories. We're doing it fully automatically. There, there's no tuning or calibration involved. It will just take any frame that was encoded and see how far it can be pushed and, and do it, you know, completely automatically. And it can be combined with different encoding solutions. We have implemented it with our Beamer 4 and Beamer 5 encoders. Which are AVC and HEVC. Exactly. We're also looking at very interesting cooperations with other encoders that use this patented, right? It's important to, to point out at this point. So we're up to 45. So that's 45 granted patents, right? Yeah, it's 45 granted patents worldwide. The, the vast majority is in the US and they're divided into two groups. Um, one is more focused on, on the smaller group, about 11 patents are focused on the uh, video encoding itself. And some of these were uh, granted to... Vanguard Video, which is a subsidiary that was joined us a few years back. And the majority of them, the remaining 34, 
are 34. all around the CAPR, Quality Measure, JPEG Mini, you know, all our proprietary... Content adaptive stuff. Content adaptive solutions. And, uh, you know, you were really instrumental in uh, writing and obviously developing all of the algorithms, but also in uh, writing and editing and uh, involved in the process of, of patenting all of these um, technologies. And I'm sure during this process of 10 years and finally, you know, getting 34 grants, you learned some things about, uh, about the patent process. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, my, my insights, well, when I came to Beamer, I had one patent to my name and, you know, it was, it was done in the, the way that it's usually done in large companies where basically you uh, develop the algorithm and sign the document. And that's about how involved you are in the process. But when we went to, to patent or, or to prepare our first patent application, it was on the, the JPEG Mini or the Image Optimization Scheme. And uh, we were very hands-on and we went and met with a patent attorney. And I distinctly remember sitting there and my feeling was, okay, you know, I've explained to the patent attorney what the invention is and what it's all about. And she's starting to translate this into claims. And, you know, we do one round and another round and another round. And when I don't understand what it says anymore, the claim is ready. <laughs> so like this is, you know, I've invented this. I, I developed it. This was my baby. And I, I couldn't understand what, you know, a, a system comprising and but. Okay. So so that was the process. We did about we did about 25 claims and it was like, okay, I don't understand it. She's going to be happy now. We went from that extreme of I mean, literally it was just what is going on here to through more applications and then the first office actions and I started getting more and more involved. Nowadays I do most of our drafting uh, independently. We've already drafted two full-scale applications. Uh, on our own. Um, I, I'm much more involved, of course, in all the, the office actions and, and the, the prosecutions. Um, and it's, it's you know, I've, I've learned another language. So that's cool. I first was exposed to what we're doing in uh, February 2012, uh, when Eli Lubitsch joined me at a conference in New York City, and he had his laptop open, and he was working the room, showing uh, the uh, image of, uh, I think it's a girl's hand with like beads in it, um, or, uh, or maybe it's colored candies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I've yeah, yeah. Seen, I should know exactly. I've seen it, you know, hundreds of times, um, but in uh, showing a 90% reduction and, you know, and, and loading it up and he'd flash back and forth and which is the original. And of course, I couldn't tell. And I saw to my astonishment that, you know, literally every person he approached, you know, they couldn't tell. So are there any milestones uh, along the way that maybe you'd like to highlight or, you know, um, key in on? I think uh, the best way to answer is uh, to share a, a story. So after we developed the quality measure and, you know, the first version of JPEG Mini was out, um, Beamer hadn't been founded yet. We were still sort of working, you know, in complete startup mode. And I came to Sharon and I said, well, you're not going to need me for, for much longer, right? Because, I mean, you know, you've got your quality <laughs> measure. Uh, we have the solution. So, you know, I should probably start looking for a real job. 
And ever so often, he likes to go back and remind me of that story. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, he thinks it's hilarious. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it's been a constant learning curve. I mean, you know, I put it as we had a first solution in a month. Well, we did, but it wasn't good enough. I mean, first you hit the synthetic photos and you realize that maybe you haven't accounted for all the differentiating factors in that. In video, at some point, we added some pre-analysis that, for example, has a very efficient uh, algorithm to detect faces and detect skin because the amount of texture distortion that you're willing to accept in the grass is very different from the amount of texture distortion you're willing to accept in someone's beard or on, on their arm and their freckles. So we added more and more components as we went along. And of course, you know, going from still images to video, it's it's not a an easy process and you think you have everything sorted and then you have a, a clip that comes in that's completely blank and in like I don't know 20 pixels on the bottom right you have this logo fading in over 20 frames and ah you know gee we, we hadn't thought of that so it was a constant improving process for many years in the beginning. I, I always say that, you know, if I look back and I know I haven't needed to open the algorithm for a certain amount of time, then my confidence level rises. So uh, JPEG Mini, we've been at that point for years now. We haven't made any algorithmic changes. Video as the new format and, you know, HDR becomes more popular. So that required a bit more calibration. And, and it's as formats come out and things change slightly, it's it's not starting from scratch. We have the base and, and we can adapt to whatever is needed, but it, it is always, you know, a process. And uh, you, you mentioned uh, uh, before the, the acquisition of uh, Vanguard Video that uh, we did in 2016. And this is also, Mark, if you mentioned the milestones, this can be considered a, a milestone because after we did this acquisition and we had access to our own H.264 and HEVC software encoders, we could do the next level of integration for, uh, for the video, for the content adaptive uh, uh, video encoding. Because before that, we worked on video, but it was kind of a, a second pass um, process because we took video that's already encoded and then we found how much we can reduce that video. But uh, after the acquisition, when we had access to the encoder, we could actually do the integration in the encoder and do the encoding and uh, the optimization in, in one pass. And we actually have access to the, to the source frame. So, Tamar, maybe you can uh, talk a little bit about uh, this integration and, and, and the advantages it has in terms of uh, quality and performance. Sure, sure. So, as you said, you know, the previous solution we had, which... Uh, uh, it was known as the Beamer Optimizer, essentially uh, introduced a second generation of ENCODE. The output is still perceptually identical to the input, but you're more limited in what you can do. Once we had our own codex in-house, uh, it became clear that an even better outcome could be obtained by taking this process inside the ENCODER. So uh, we, we can take a frame and have the recommendation of the regular encoder rate control, whatever rate control is being used, if it's for constant quality, if it's for, for a certain target bit rate, we have that 
rate control available and it can perform a first encode of a frame. And this is what the frame would be if we were to do the regular video encoding. We then take the input frame and we encode it again. But this time, the module telling us how to encode the frame, configuring the encoding of the frame, is the CABR control, the Content Adaptive Bitrate Control module, that says, OK, now I want you to try this for that frame. It gets a candidate frame. It checks, does this frame look the same as the input frame? And is it smaller? Am I happy with the result? Do I want to try something else? If I want to try something else, the CABR control module will recommend another configuration. Try encoding the frame again. Look at it. Calculate the quality. Decide what to do next. Now, this sounds like a very cumbersome process. And it's hard to you know, wrap your head around how can this happen in live. Well, it's not that cumbersome. It just sounds that way because when we're doing the additional encodes, we're not really doing a full encode. We already have access to all the decisions that were made the first time this frame was encoded. It's the same input frame. It's the same reference frames in our decoded picture buffer. And all we want to do is slightly modify some of the encoding decisions maybe or perhaps even only the quantization parameter that is used to quantize the residuals of the encoded frame. So we're only doing a very small part of the encoding in these additional encodes. Add to that that because we have a very highly tuned search algorithm that is responsible for saying, OK, let's try this, now let's try this, on a typical movie, we average only an additional one and a half iterations per frame. So take the fact that these iterations are much faster than the original encode. Take the fact that we're only doing on average one and a half iterations per frame and reaching you know, the optimal decisions. And you get a result that, yes, it's a bit slower than regular encoding. But depending on the mode and depending on the encoding speed, it can add as little as 20 or 30% overhead or up to about times two. So yeah, we're pretty happy with those results. And the average savings to Mar that we're, that we're seeing, what okay, is Okay, so it's very, very content dependent because it's content adaptive. That's right, <laughs> so, that's right, by uh, definition. <laughs> By definition, it is very content dependent, but it's quite typical for, you know, typical streaming bit rates or whatever to see anywhere between 10 to 50%. Yeah. If we're talking very high input quality, like directly from the iPhone camera, okay, which, which it does compress. So we're talking after the first hardware compression, but it's generally, if, if we remember back to the beginning of the conversation, when we were talking about JPEGs that were just stored at really high quality, because I don't want to take any risks. Mm -hmm. So when you're looking at video like that, we can get 70% savings easily. And nobody can tell the difference between the sides. Like people often pick out the original as being the degraded clip. So yeah, I, I've got to say just uh, this earlier today, I was I was looking for examples to, to show at the, the conference and, and at the meetings in the US. And it's, it's just, I, 
I'm not generally like a very relaxed and positive person. I usually see where things aren't working and what's going wrong and, you know, what we still need to solve. And I said, okay, you know, I need some good examples. So I have, you know, various folders where I did some experiments and I have some some results of, of our CABRN code, you know. And I said, okay, well, I'll start looking and, and see which look okay, you know, which I'm happy with, which... And it's like, it's it's a really satisfying process because they just really all look perceptually identical. So I, I think, you know, we've pretty much uh, gotten to where we wanted to be. And, uh, and that's great. Yeah, I think I think that's really um, that's really amazing, and uh, and the fact that you are satisfied with the results, you know, knowing you personally, that's amazing <laughs> to me. <laughs> and I'm very happy with that. That you know, finally, but and and it's a very nice, you know, um, a closure to to the discussion. Um, but but one more topic I want to uh, to cover is uh, is kind of uh, looking ahead. You know, like the look ahead you have in a video encoder. We want to look ahead and to see what what is next in 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 the pipeline. And I think we we got a, a small glimpse of that at NAB, where uh, we we presented a product called uh, CABR Library, which is the engine of the content adapted that can be integrated with other encoders. So maybe you can talk a bit about about that. Sure. We we like to work, you know, with our own encoder and we believe we have excellent encoders and with the CABR they they are very good solutions. But they are software encoders and they are focused on solving uh, particular issues and some uh, vendors uh, may need, for example, hardware encoders to reach the density and the performance that they require. And uh, what we've now seen in successful uh, integrations and demos is that we can take the same CAPR technology um, and idea and concept and integrate it with a hardware encoder. So the CABR is working outside at the moment on software, but in the future, possibly on GPU or FPGA. Um, we're working on, on investigating different models that will take the algorithms and port them to different architectures. And, and that can control a hardware encoder with very simple interfaces that usually exist in the hardware encoder anyway. And be able to turn off the shelf, regular run of the mill encoder into a content adaptive closed loop at frame level adaptation with a quality guarantee. So, so that's, uh, I think, where our, where we're heading at the moment. Yeah, that's really super exciting. We are seeing incredible interest in cloud gaming. And therefore, uh, having, you know, as you said, Tamar, you know, that density that can only come uh, from uh, hardware, you know, from, from, a, from a hardware encoder, from silicon, you know, and the low power envelope and everything that you get with that combined with this CABR process is just, um, uh, this is really impactful uh, into this really exciting new segment. And we, we we want you back here in a few weeks because um, there's another paper that we didn't mention that you're also going to present at uh, the SPA conference about how to do large-scale subjective testing very fast and very cheap. And I'm sure everybody will be interested uh, in that. Um, so I guess we're going to talk again. 
Yeah, no, that that that's definitely. I mean, I I can say, uh, you know, as a, a video compression practitioner for many years, I I said to Daphna, the the developer that's been working on this, the other day, I said, you've made my dream come true, and I have a feeling that when we expose this at the conference to <laughs> roomful of a、uh, video compression practitioners, a few of them are gonna feel the same way, and you know, where where do I sign up because the Problem of evaluating perceptual quality of video is, is I mean, it's just there, there's no easy way to do it, and we we cover that in the paper, the challenge, and how we've solved it really in a in a easy to use, fast, cheap. I mean, it's just a dream come true. For now, I would like to to thank you, Tamar, for really、um, enlightening、uh, presentation of、uh, of technology. Personally, it was very exciting、uh, to me because usually, you know, we we interview a lot of、uh, people from the industry, from other companies, and this time I had the chance uh, uh, to interview、uh, one of our own and、uh, also, you know, expose all of this、uh, amazing technology that we've developed over the years and review it. And it it was interesting, even even for me, to see this in this、uh, scope. So, thank you very much. Yes, thank you, Tamar. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's it's you know it's a a great journey, ongoing journey, and and it. I, I mean, I agree with you, George. Just seeing it in perspective, it, it's definitely wow. <laughs> All right, and、uh, thank you to our listeners.、Uh, we are so honored to have you on this journey. There is quite a community that is growing around the podcast. Uh, we are now over twenty episodes, and just having a lot of fun. We hope you're enjoying this. If you have not joined our LinkedIn group, make sure you do. And if you're going to be at IBC, hey, reach out. We'd love to meet you. So until next time, happy encoding, and thank you for being a part of the Video Insiders. Thank you, everybody. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Video Insiders podcast, a production of Beamer Limited. To begin using Beamer's Codex today, go to beamer.com/free to receive up to 100 hours of no-cost HVC and H.264 transcoding every month.